For those of you that remain in the auditorium or are watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first three verses of chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. As we try to say most Sundays, everything we do at Grace Baptist Church is founded on and rooted in the Word of God. These are not our ideas or our pet peeves. This is not a platform for our preferences, but we want to speak to you faithfully every time we do from God's Word. And so we hope that you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you came this morning and you're new to us, thank you so much for being here. And maybe you don't have a copy of God's Word Somewhere under the chairs in front of you, there should be a Bible, and in that Bible, it's on p- page 693, 693, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. As mentioned, we want to look this morning at the topic of humility. It's a very difficult topic to address. I can't even say that this will be a good sermon on humility. Sorry, bad joke. It's a difficult topic for us to wrap our minds around, and it's even harder for us to live it out, this concept of humility. We have here a unique chapter in the book of Daniel, and that's saying something given what's coming in the back half of the book. But two things stand out as we prepare to dive in. One, this is the only chapter that I'm aware of that is written by a pagan king. It's written from the first-hand experience of a pagan monarch, Nebuchadnezzar. It's certainly written, perhaps, by the author of Daniel, but this chapter in particular is in the first person and is written from the perspective of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Our three verses are also unique because they tell the end of the story at the beginning. How many of you skipped the final chapter when you're reading a book just to see how it ends? Any twisted people in this morning? Nobody? Okay, a few people? All right. This chapter is unique because what happens in the first three verses is almost identical to what Nebuchadnezzar will say in verses 34 through 37 at the end of the chapter. It's sort of bookended, but it gives away the ending before we even have the beginning. Now, if you've read Daniel before, we know what's about to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream, another dream. He's going to be humbled by God in a way that is certainly unique, unknown to many of us, this boanthropy that's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll go into as we continue on in this chapter. But he starts with how he's going to end, and I think there's a reason why he does that. He does not want us to miss the reality of what is about to happen to him. And how it has humbled him, and therefore how it ought to humble us. God is in control of all things, as our theme is standing firm in the sovereignty of God. We ought not to lay claim to things that are not ours. We ought not to take the glory for things that we ultimately have not done. We ought not to elevate ourselves above God. There is a God, and we are not him. But we struggle with this on a daily basis. And so King Nebuchadnezzar wants to front-end load this so it is not missed. Before you even start this story, don't miss this 
Daniel 4, 1 to 3. Follow along if you would as I read these verses this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the word of God. Nebuchadnezzar has other things to say in this chapter. But he wants us to hear these words first. Because he does not want us to miss how the events of this chapter deeply impacted him. And he is hopeful that his experience reaches beyond himself all the way down now to us sitting here in 2023 so that we don't have to learn by our own personal experience but can learn through his. That there is a God and we are not him. So notice in verse 1 then the scope of humility. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 has made a decree for all peoples, all tongues, all languages, all ethnos, all nations. Come and bow down to the great image that I have set up. And now he has a different message. But the scope is the same. Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, ethnos, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I have something of great importance to tell you. Have you ever dated someone in secret? Anybody ever had that experience? Or someone wanted to date you but didn't want you to tell anybody that they were dating? Nobody? It happens. Shouldn't happen for very long because if someone says, we should date but don't tell anybody... That should be a huge red flag. Have you ever known a young lady to get a, an engagement ring and hide it? What typically happens when their engagement takes place? It is broadcast far and wide, so proud, so delighted, so happy. See, it doesn't do us much good if God teaches us something, especially humility, and in our pride, we don't bother sharing that with anybody. It's a little difficult to have private humility. Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone to know this. This does not reflect well on him, if you know the story, which we're going to dissect over a number of different sermons. This would not be part of your autobiography if you were writing it, probably. This is not something that you just can't wait to tell at parties. Hey, you'll never guess what happened to me. But Nebuchadnezzar has truly been transformed by this story, this reality. And so he does want everyone to know. And would to God that we would be as vulnerable as this pagan king 
that we are okay to share our vulnerabilities because of what God is teaching us and in the hopes that he may teach others as well. Our struggles and God's rescue of us in those struggles should be told. Our story should be shared. And more importantly, his story should be shared of his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a story of great humility. The fact that Christians have as their symbol a cross is unique and quite telling. And it is an instrument not just of torturous death, but an instrument designed specifically for public humiliation. Crucifixions did not take place in private. They did not erect crosses in back alleys. Outside of Jerusalem, it was on the hill of Golgotha. It was so that everyone could see. Come against Rome, defy Rome, and this will happen to you. It is a story of humiliation. And yet we who follow Christ have embraced his humility and desire it to reflect us as well. It is not a message of triumph and human power, but instead a message of great humility as we're going to see. And so hopefully it is not something we're embarrassed about. Nebuchadnezzar could have been embarrassed about what God did to him. But instead, he says, I have a message for everyone who will listen. The same audience that he wanted to bow down to the image that he made up, the same amount of people that he desired to give glory to him, he now wants them to give glory to God. This is the power of God in transforming human lives. Notice in verse 2, the gratitude of humility. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Again, this is not something then that Nebuchadnezzar is embarrassed by or wants to hide. His officers certainly did during the time that he was unceremoniously away from his throne. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar front end loads this story to say, it seemed good to me to share this with you. Does it seem good to us that we have been humbled and are repeatedly humbled by God, that we serve a humble Savior? Yes, he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is coming back that way. But in his first advent that we're just about to celebrate next month, very humble, humble beginnings, oftentimes spoken of as we were reminded of the Christmas story. And we're about to go to Philippians 2. Does it embarrass us how God humbles us, brought us to our knees, which hopefully he has done and continues to do? Or are we thankful for it? We thank God for how he humbles us and reminds us that there is a God, but it's not us. Far too often we tell stories with ourselves as the heroes. Far too often we make life about us, our comfort, our pleasure, our preferences, our opinions. We must be heard. 
We must be listened to. We must be highlighted. And thanks be to God that he continually lets us know that it's not about us. Never has been, never will be. It's about him. But it's one thing to begrudgingly accept that. It's another thing to be enthusiastically grateful for that. This story, especially in light of the monarch that it was, should not have ever been told. It should not have ever been repeated. This monarch should have made sure the historians cut that chapter out of the biography. Can we keep this quiet? Nobody should know about this. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar wants up front to say, no, 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 not only do I want everybody to know about this, I'm thankful for this. It seemed good to me to share this. Do we feel the same? Notice the truth of humility in verse 3. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. The truth is that anything that reminds us that there is a God and it's not us is something that we should be grateful for. It grounds us. It roots us. Daniel and his three friends are not only aware of this, they've embraced it and it shows in their lives. They are not shaken by the major shifts that have taken place in their lives. As young teenagers, they are stolen from their country, kidnapped and taken to a foreign nation. Their names are changed. Their education system is changed. Everything about them is attempted to be changed, even down to what they eat and how they dress. And yet these three men say, no, we serve God, the one true God. He's above all monarchs. He's above all kings. But it doesn't make them proud. It makes them humble. How can we simultaneously say, I serve the king of kings and lord of lords, and then act as though that's us? There's no room for pride, for self-promotion, for self-glory before the Almighty. Nebuchadnezzar has gone from taking the first dream and erecting this massive statue, this massive image, and calling everybody to worship it and through it him, his glory, to now calling for everyone to worship God and his glory. And the heart out of which he does that is a heart of humility. When I see posts of triumphalism, when I see that attitude amongst Christians, it grieves me. How can we be proudly humble? How can we be humbly proud? That in calling other people to bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we are not doing that ourselves but are instead standing next to him as if we're on the same level. So you're not here this morning because you're smarter than other people. You're not here because you're more moral. You're not here because you're better looking. You're not here for any other reason, hopefully, than the grace of God in your life. 
And that ought to humble us. Arrogance has no place in Christianity. The leader of Christianity, Christ himself, was humbled, is humble. How can we as his servants be any less? So in the fourth place this morning then, what is the core of humility? What is the core message here in the first three verses of Daniel 4? The core is that God is sovereign and we are not. We, we need this reminder all the time. We love control. We try to control as many aspects of our lives as we possibly can. We love taking credit. It's our favorite thing to do, even as we're falsely humble about it. We love individuals making much of us. We love the focus being on us. We come out of the womb selfish. And it is our role as parents to both know and model for our children that there is a God, but it's not you and it's not me. There is a sovereign but his name is not Nebuchadnezzar. There is a sovereign, but it's not a president or a prime minister or even a king. There is a sovereign, but there's only one. And he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is Yahweh, almighty God, who before whom there was nothing, and after he spoke everything that is sprang into existence through his mere words. This is the God of the universe, And we're not him. But we constantly struggle with acting like we are, even as Christians. Somebody doesn't do something the way we want it done. Somebody doesn't say something the way we want it said. And we get upset, we get angry, we get bent out of shape, we hold grudges. We act as though we are God. And here's a pagan king (laughs) instructing us this morning. Grace Baptist Church, there is a sovereign God, but he's not me, and he's not you. And so we worship him. Take your Bibles then, if you would, and go to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we have the greatest example of humility, as well as the only hope we have of being humble. Paul lays out for us the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Allow me to read the first 10 verses this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What do we find here in the humility of Christ? We find in the first five verses that unity is founded on humility. How is it that we can operate together as a true church family? How can we display to a watching world the truth of the gospel? How can we be assured ourselves that we know it and are living in light of it? How do we function in a way that honors and glorifies God? The foundation for that is humility. If there's any encouragement, comfort, participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy, Paul says, be in full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. We've already seen this in James as we walk through that this summer. This is not from above. This is earthly and sensual and devilish, he says, this type of thinking. This is where conflict comes from. This is where strife originates. I want what I want when I want it. This is not the mind of Christ. This is not the heart of of Christ. This is not the example of Christ. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Someone has said, when we come to church, whenever we gather and throughout the week, we can either live with a bib on or an apron. If we come to church and live with a bib on, we expect to be served. Does this church meet my needs? Does this family rally around me? Does it have the services that I like? Do they sing my songs? Do they have the uh, seats I like to sit on? Do they preach the way I like the Word of God to be preached? Do they have the ministries that I need for my family? This is bib mentality. This is serve me. What does it say about Christ? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is apron thinking. Let's get our hands dirty for the cause of Christ. How can I serve others? How can I count them as more significant than myself? Where are their needs in the church? Who's sitting by themselves and needs someone to sit next to them and welcome them in 
Who needs to be invited out this morning for a meal? Who needs to be welcomed into my friendship circle? Who can I serve? Who needs meals? Who needs help? Who needs a word of encouragement? Who can I text or email or call this week? How can I serve the body of Christ? How can I serve my community? How can I spend and be spent for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the wonder of Christ's humility in verses 6 through 8. It is transformative to hear of a pagan monarch, Nebuchadnezzar, who goes from self-promotion on a level that's hard for us to wrap our minds around to saying the things that he starts Daniel chapter 4 with. This is the power of God. To take an individual who is powerful in his own mind and reduce him to a humble individual who gives all glory to God. Only God can do that because only God can change the human heart. So for Nebuchadnezzar to go from gathering all people's tongues and nations to the plains of Dura and have them worship this great image that he has set up to saying, no, there is a God, but it's not me. And his greatness is greater than anyone. His kingdom is everlasting, not mine. But that pales in comparison to the humility of Jesus Christ. He is God. Deity is not something that he is scrabbling after, it says in verse 6. Equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. It's not that he has insecure in who he is. He is God and very God. But he empties himself and takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. There's nothing else like this, as we have said numerous times from this pulpit. Every other thought that humanity has come up with, every other ism and ideology says, we are down here, we need to go up. Only Christianity says, yes, we are down here, but we can't go up. So we can't become like God or like the gods, but God came down to us. That's the gospel. God entered into his creation. Jesus Christ the righteous enrobed himself in human flesh. He became one of us. What God does that? Only the one true God. Well, what kind of man did he become? A servant. How could he have come? Many different ways. How did he come? Born of a lowly couple from Nazareth in Bethlehem and placed in a feeding trough for animals, announced by shepherds. This is our God. This is Jesus. Everything he had in life, someone has said, is borrowed. He didn't even have his own home. He says that in the Gospels. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only person who did not have to die died for everyone who should die. 
offering to us if we trust in him and him alone, his righteousness, because he took upon himself the penalty for our unrighteousness. The humility of Christ. So what is the result of Christ's humility? Therefore, because of his obedience, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We should be first in line to be doing that. And yet, how often we, like the disciples, want to carve out a place for ourselves at Christ's right or left hand. At least twice in Mark's gospel, immediately after Jesus lets his disciples know that he's going to die, they say, yeah, 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 but who's the greatest in your kingdom? They didn't get it, and far too often we don't get it. It's an upside-down world that we live in. And Jesus wants us to occupy the true world, which is upside right. Our world says, if you want to be first, then you got to be first. Which seems to make sense. But what did Jesus say? If you want to be first, what do you need to be? Last, if you want to be greatest, you have to be the least. What does Jesus do in John's gospel, just before his crucifixion? He takes off his outer garments, gets a towel and a basin of water, and washes his disciples' feet. And have you considered that one of the disciples whose feet he washes is Judas Iscariot, the one who will, in a few hours, betray him? And what does Jesus say? I left this as an example for you. Far too often, we are the ones demanding our feet be washed. And far too few times are we the ones not only begrudgingly willing to wash the feet, but offering to do so. And so these words to us this morning come from a pagan king. And yet he is speaking to us words that we need to hear. There is a God, but I'm not him, and neither are you. So why do we live our lives like we are? You're not in control. Your preferences may not come to pass. The things that you want to see done and the way you want them done and the timing you want them done in may not take place. Are we daily submitting to Christ and and exalting Him? Because it's all about Him. And so that is our response this morning. Is the gospel producing humility in our hearts? I shake my head every time I see a proud Christian. That doesn't make sense until I realize that I need to shake my head at myself every moment of every day, because that's me. 
And so I want to close with these words of C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And that is the sin of pride. There is no other sin we are more blind to in our own lives, but simultaneously <coughs> no other sin that we hate as much when we see it in others. God help us. God help us to be humble. Do we remember the moment of our salvation? When we finally were brought to the place where we realized that we were sinners and we could not save ourselves. And we simply, like that tax collector Jesus talks about, say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What happened to that person? Where did that person go? In the years since, <clears throat> what happened to that confession? What happened to that heart posture? We should never lose that. From the moment of our salvation to the end of our days and throughout all of eternity, we should have that as our heart posture. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I do not deserve your grace. I cannot earn your grace. I cannot keep your favor. God, the only hope I have and in life and in death is you. And may that be how we live each and every day. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as the music team returns. Father, what an amazing thing it is that you work and speak oftentimes in mysterious ways. Here we have a pagan king so filled with self, so filled with pride, so longing for self-glory, so insecure. that rather than truly paying homage to you and being grateful for revealing some of what was to come in the future to him and giving him a place of honor that he did not deserve, to instead turn that around and attempt to take it all for himself. And yet this pagan deity in all of his pride is reduced is humbled by you, not because you hate him, but because you love him. Father, our Lord and Savior, our Master, the one that we sing praises to, the one that we are grateful for, was humble. Humble in a way that is hard for us to fathom. Humbly left glory to become human humbly became a servant, a humble human, not seeking for the world's glory or for temporary fame. And then in all humility, went to the cross and died a death of abject humiliation, all for us. 
our symbol is a cross. May it pierce our hearts, Father, because far too often we are proud and we are arrogant and we are self-serving, selfishly ambitious, desiring for self-glory. May we remember who we are in Christ, as Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not an impossible task to be humble. It's readily accessible to us because we are in Christ. And so your Holy Spirit indwells us. Help us, Father, that rather than seeing and loathing pride in others, that with even greater vehemence we would see it and loathe it in ourselves. Humble us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.